A'udhu Billah Minash Rajim Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our life series. The last time that we met, we were still going through the characteristics of the teacher or the scholar in Islam. And uh, once again, we'll spare the full recap today. Inshallah, the topic and the main points are still uh, fresh in your minds. But maybe the highlights from the last time that we met. We talked about a couple of verses from the Holy Quran in which there is a direct mention of people who carry knowledge. One of them was in Surah Fatr, and one of them was in Surah Al-Isra. In one verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, It is those, or it is only those of the servants of God who possess knowledge, who fear Him, who fear God. And the second set of verses it was not just one verse there are a set of three verses in surah al-isra allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was talking about those who were given the knowledge before these arabs to whom the holy prophet was sent those who had been given the knowledge the knowledge of the revelation or knowledge and we went through the verses the description given in these verses of the Qur'an of those people who, by the testimony of the Qur'an, they are given knowledge. And here we saw how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes those who were given knowledge. And in this case, as we have been discussing, there is real knowledge and there is the knowledge and appearance that we refer to as knowledge. In this case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, they, these people were actually given knowledge. And so we know for a fact that this is the real knowledge that we're talking about. And we saw how the verses of the Qur'an describe the state of those people when they are exposed to revelation, when they are exposed to the truth, what is revealed to the Holy Prophet and his teachings. The Holy Qur'an was describing their state, that they recognize the truth, that they remember God, that they remember the afterlife, that they fall to their faces, prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and weeping, the Holy Quran says. They cry simply because they have heard the truth. So on one side, we see that there's a spiritual aspect, a spiritual dimension to knowledge that allows us to recognize truth. This is beyond just the accumulation of information. This means that knowledge, if it's true knowledge, it's going to allow you to distinguish between what is true knowledge and not. And you will react to it. So this is what we refer to Islamically. We call it, for instance, basira. It's like a, a, a light in the heart. It's like a spiritual guidance that you get because you have real knowledge. It allows you to see things for what they really are. And these people, you see that, they react to this knowledge even at the physical level. 
knowledge does something to them physically so that they have to fall to their faces the quran says prostrating right so when you fall to your face performing the sujood performing the prostration to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and weeping and remembering allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so on and so forth and the link here was that knowledge cannot just be an accumulation of information that does nothing to the heart or to the soul the main purpose of knowledge or as we saw before in previous weeks when we met the different narrations were saying for instance the purpose of knowledge or the fruit of knowledge is that you fear god is that you know god better is that you remember god more and so the relationship with god is always the main purpose of the knowledge and this has to therefore become our main criteria too as i accumulate knowledge i constantly have to remind myself and examine is this knowledge helping me get closer to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if not maybe i should be focusing on other types of knowledge or knowledge from another source from another person delivered in another way so that it gives me this purpose this purpose that is the real purpose behind knowledge otherwise this knowledge is just just an accumulation of information and it does nothing to the heart and the soul that was the first point and then we started talking about this additional dimension in the ahadith and the ruwayat in which clearly when you carry knowledge first and foremost you have an additional responsibility towards yourself knowledge comes with a responsibility that you have to act according to that knowledge and this is individual this has to do with you as a person carrying knowledge you have a duty towards yourself to act according to the knowledge that you have and this part as we said we had already discussed maybe indirectly but we had already discussed in the series we said for instance that knowledge has to have sincerity and it has to lead to action okay so one way or another we had talked about this and inshallah we're going to continue in these hadith in these reports that we're looking at this dimension is there but the novelty of these reports is this additional aspect this additional dimension in them that clearly in addition to me having a duty towards myself because i carry knowledge i also have a duty towards others there's a social dimension you carry a specific place in society you play a different role in the community because you carry knowledge whether people know or not if they know there's even more of a duty and more of a responsibility if they don't that's fine you still carry that because you now know other people don't know but you do whatever it may be that you do know you now carry an additional duty which is social in addition to the duty you carry yourself which is individual now you carry a social duty towards others and we started seeing that in a number of hadith and this is what we're continuing today inshallah with more angles all of them under this general heading of the we called it the social burden the social responsibility of carrying knowledge we saw a hadith for instance that spoke about how the speech of the scholar the speech of the person who carries knowledge is not neutral the hadith were saying that it is either a cure or an illness it's never neutral because of the 
psychological aspect. You carry more knowledge. You carry more tools around the knowledge and how you communicate and how you argue because of the psychological and social aspect that people know that you carry knowledge. And so when you say something, it carries a lot more weight than when someone else says the same thing, but people don't recognize them as carrying knowledge. For all of these reasons and others, the speech is no longer neutral. It is either beneficial or harmful. There is no more neutral speech. And we saw that. If it's good, Imam Ali was saying, if it is good, it's a cure. It's curing something. It's making something better. And if it is not good, if it's a mistake, if it's incorrect, it's an illness. It's going to cause more harm. It's going to cause injury. It's going to lead people astray. It's going to lead to misguidance, and so on and so forth. Another example that we saw related to this, how the hadith were saying that the slip-up, the mistake of the scholar is not like the mistake of anyone else. When someone else makes a mistake, they are making a mistake for themselves. The issue harms them. They are leading themselves into harm, into misguidance, into loss. When the scholar makes a mistake, the slip-up, you will remember, the slip-up of the scholar destroys worlds. The slip-up of the scholar is like the ship that breaks. It's not only the ship that sinks, it sinks everyone on that ship too. Okay, so inshallah those um, images are, are clear enough. And we also hear, that was maybe a little bit more part of the discussion, we didn't cover it as part of the lecture, how therefore there's a fine balancing act that we have to do. Now that you carry knowledge, you have to be careful. On the one side, you understand that there is a responsibility, so you must act you must talk, you must teach, you must spread that knowledge. You can't keep it to yourself. And on the other side, make sure that it is correct. Because if it is incorrect, it's going to lead to a lot more harm than the next person who is not a carrier of knowledge. When they say something that is incorrect, it's going to be limited to them. People don't give them more weight than their individual opinion. In your case, your opinion carries a lot more. People say, this is per a person who has studied religion. They know more, so they're, they have researched this. They understand it a lot more. And this can lead to misguidance, to loss, to confusion, to other people. We saw the hadith that say, for instance, that the best thing in this world is a scholar. And the worst thing in this world is the scholar. Right? If the scholar is good, the Holy Prophet says, they are the best thing in this world. The best of all good is a good scholar. And the worst of all evil is, a, is an evil scholar. Okay, And once again, we said, why is this the case? Because initially we saw a hadith that only say that, but we saw a hadith that give us the explanation. And part of the explanation was that the scholar, that hadith was saying, the scholar is the one who is going to disseminate the falsehood. And the scholar is going to be the one who is going to conceal and to hide or to prevent the truth, to hide the truth, to keep the truth hidden. People recognize you, recognize the scholar as being the exclusive channel to truth and falsehood. So when you say something, of course it's going to carry more weight. In addition to that, when you come up with a falsehood, your falsehood is a lot better as a falsehood a lot more effective 
unfortunately, as a falsehood than the falsehood of someone else. Because people trust and people rely on you as a source of knowledge. And if you are not the one who is going to disseminate the truth, then who is going to? And so you are the exclusive gate, the exclusive channel to the truth. There is no other way for the people to get to the truth except through scholars. And this is why, unfortunately, oftentimes in society, we forget the role of the intellectual and the elites and the people who have that expertise in society. We often think that in society, for instance, these big ideas just emerge by themselves from the people in society. No, that's not how society works. The idea starts somewhere, usually in the minds of the big thinkers, in the minds of the big scholars. But the big thinkers and scholars, most of the time, cannot speak the language that the majority of the people will easily understand and be easily influenced with. Even if you understand it at a high level, you don't see the direct application to your lives. That's why it takes a little bit longer. It has to be translated, one, two, three layers. Those who are closest to that scholar, to that thinker, are going to start translating what that really means and what it means for our lives and what we need to do about it. And slowly the idea starts to spread that way. That's why, inshallah, we'll come back to this later. But we're going to see that this is what our religion has said is no different than today when they study in sociology, when they study society and you want to influence. They recognize that the intellectuals and the elites, they carry much more responsibility than just the, the average human being who has an opinion or who has a platform or you know who has access to social media. You don't hold them to the same account and to the same standard. This is well recognized. And so what our religion is saying here is no different. Because of your reach, and this is all confirming in our religion, that you do have much more reach. And so therefore, the responsibility and the additional burden, they make sense. And then we saw a number of ahadith, maybe three, four, maybe more or less, all of them starting in a similar wording from the Holy Prophet from Imam Ali السلام, where they say something like ظهري, right? Ithnan or Rajulan two men have broken my back two types of people have broken my back and they spoke about two no matter how they describe them it all comes back to this the, the popular version, the popular wording is alimun mutahattik jahilun mutanassik a scholar who openly commits sins and vices, they are a scholar. You know this is someone who carries knowledge and they still perform the sin. And the other person is the person who is a great worshiper, great at performing the rituals that are associated with religion. But they're foolish or they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. And we even saw a hadith that tell us why this is the case. Why did those two people break the back of the Holy Prophet or Imam Ali because those are Imam Ali was saying in his hadith fitnatu kulli maftun right they are the reason why most people are led astray the masses are not able to distinguish they start rejecting all knowledge and all religion and all truth because they see the person who is supposed to represent it performing openly performing sins openly acting against a knowledge that they're supposed to represent and they're supposed to carry. Okay, so what good is this knowledge and what good is this faith? If this is the person who best represents it, this is how they act. 
It's useless. It means that it doesn't really affect you. It doesn't really change you. It doesn't really make you a better person. And on the other side, people are unable to see that this person who is performing all sorts of acts of worship and rituals and so on and so forth, they're unable to see that this person is actually completely ignorant, completely devoid of any real knowledge. They don't know the truth. They are blindly repeating things. So whatever this person is going to say, they take it for granted because this person is an amazing worshiper. This person is a very good representative of our rituals. Who says? The scholar has to say whether this is the case or not. So this person, Imam Ali alayhi salam, you will remember the hadith. He was saying this person, the second one, is going to attract people to his ignorance through his worship. And this go- the scholar is going to push people away from the truth because of his sins. And this was the explanation. And that's why they are fitna to kulli maftun. They are the reason why everyone is led astray. People are lost between those two. And how do you go to people and keep explaining to them, yes, this person is a scholar, but what they're doing is wrong. The majority of people are going to reject that. They're not going to get that. Or especially, there was another hadith that we saw, where Imam Ali was saying, the Holy Prophet told me, Alimul Lisan, right? He's not a scholar. He's a scholar of the tongue. This is someone who can justify everything they're doing, argue for everything they're doing. So even if you think that this is wrong, they will find a way to convince you that this was the right thing to do. And on the other side, the person who comp- attracts people to ignorance, to foolishness, to whatever they believe and whatever they do, they attract them with something that the majority of people consider to be very good. Who is against zuhud? Who is against detachment? And who is against worship? No one. So this is what is used to bring people into the ignorance and the foolishness of that this person represents. And the imam says, and the other hadith was, al-ilm, when, when knowledge is without zuhd, it is aqal. It's useless. It doesn't lead to anything. And by opposition, al-zuhd, bidun ilm, batal. To have worship and to have detachment when it is not based on knowledge, which is what we've been saying for the entirety of the series. Whatever you're doing, if it is not based on knowledge, batal. It's falsehood. You're repeating blindly something that you have received. Who says this is right? What's your argument that what you're doing is right? You're not just parroting and repeating blindly. What's the difference between you and anyone else who's repeating what they know? How is this closer to the truth? Right? So this is what we've built the whole series on, and this is just bringing us us back to that same premise. So, now we continue with exactly those points and emphasizing the social responsibility that we said. So here, remember the main characteristics. The main theme is the social burden or the social responsibility of knowledge. Now that you carry knowledge, you're not only responsible individually, you're not only responsible towards yourself, you're responsible for the guidance of others because people are looking at you as someone who carries knowledge. Here we're going to start seeing different aspects, different examples of this social burden. One aspect of it is that you have to demonstrate more God-fearing, more taqwa, more khushu', more piety than the average person. Because as we saw, 
This is the purpose of knowledge. If people know that you have more knowledge and they don't see more taqwa, more God-fearing from you, then either the interpretation of what knowledge does to someone is going to be mistaken, what they associate with knowledge is going to be going in a completely different way. We have a guarantee that true knowledge equals more taqwa, more God-fearing. So anything else means that you're driving people away. That's one. The other theme that you're going to start seeing a lot so that I don't repeat them for every hadith is that there has to be a disconnect from carrying knowledge and attachment to this world. Right? This is the how obsessed, how focused, how much of a priority is there around this world. Okay? And of course, the corollary, the other side of this is how much do you prioritize the afterlife? Is the afterlife a priority or is this world the priority? The more you carry knowledge, the more this has to show. So the first hadith from Imam al-Sadiq salam, this is Imam al-Sadiq saying the Holy Prophet has said, صَنْفَانِ مِنْ أُمَّتِي إِذَا صَلَحَ صَلَحَتْ أُمَّتِي وَإِذَا فَسَدَ فَسَدَتْ أُمَّتِي قِيلَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ هُمَا قَالَ الْفُقَهَاءِ وَالْأُمَرَاءِ Two types of people, the Holy Prophet says. So Imam al-Sadiq says, the Holy Prophet said, there are two types of people, two categories of people in my nation. If they are good, then my nation will be good. And if they are bad or corrupt, then my nation will be bad or corrupt. When he was asked, who are they? The Holy Prophet replied, the scholars of religion and the rulers. Al-Fuqaha wal-Umara. Umara. Oftentimes we think it means prince. It doesn't mean prince. It can mean today when we say emir. Al-amr is to give an order, right? It's the people who rule, the people who can give a command or an order. So the rulers in society. Here we can have a whole discussion. We haven't really talked about rulers. But there's a reason, I think, why. Here the Holy Prophet has put these two together, these two categories together. It's worth just highlighting the link. When the Holy Prophet says, there are two types of people, if they are good, my nation will be good. If they are bad, my nation will be bad. Scholars, and so that's the whole point of what we're talking about, and rulers. So what about these rulers? There's a famous saying not sure if you go back in the books of reports, of hadith, sometimes it's even reported as a hadith. Many people say it's a hadith. We're not sure. It's reported in some books of hadith, but they don't actually attribute it to anyone. So we're not sure if this is a hadith or just a, a saying that has become very popular. But it says, Anasu ala dini mulukihim. People are followers of the religion of their king of their ruler. We don't know if it's a hadith. Sometimes it's attributed as a hadith. But the content, the substance of what is in there, that people are followers of the kings or the rulers of their time, they follow whatever religion that person follows, and it doesn't need to be the religion. It needs to be the general culture, the ideas, the ideology, the worldview. The majority of people are going to have the same mentality the same cultural outlook as the people who rule, 
the person who rules. That idea in itself is not wrong. In fact, we have confirmations of this in the Holy Quran, in multiple places in the Holy Quran. We have verses in the Quran that talk about people who end up in hell because they followed the rulers. They followed the people that were the rulers and who were in charge in their time. Right? We have, for instance, the in Surah Ibrahim alayhi salam, 1421, verse 21, you have this group of people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those people are going to be brought to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, be brought together before God, they will appear before God together. This is, by the way, a word we need to highlight together. We've said in the afterlife, on the day of judgment, there's a part of our judgment that is individual. It's one-on-one. It's what did you do? Your own responsibilities. Did you pray? Did you fast? Did you recite the Quran? Did you do the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked you to do? Individual. But you also have responsibilities as a group as a family, as a community, as a society, as a humanity. You have other responsibilities. In those cases, it's not individuals. It's you as a group, how did you act? You as a group, how were you in the time of your imam? This is very different. We have very clear instances of both in the Holy Quran. And when you see a word like this in the Quran, you have to catch it. The Holy Quran says, he doesn't, the Quran doesn't say So they were brought before God No, it says Now they were brought as a group before God Why? Now here, there's a di- different discussion It's not about the individuals When they were brought as a group Now there's a It's a, it's a community of people Acting together those who are weak, they started saying to those who are استكبروا, those who were acting arrogantly, acting with pride, who were the rulers, who were acting with greatness, if I want to translate it very literally, making themselves greater than they really are. استكبار, you make yourself bigger than you are, greater than you are. Those who are weak are telling those who are acting arrogantly or with pride, we were your followers. We followed you. So today, on the day of judgment, are you going to be of any protection, of any avail to us? Are you going to help us in any way against the punishment of God? And of course, we're not finishing the the verses, but they'll tell them, no, today it doesn't make any difference whether we get patient or impatient, whether we do anything or not, we're all going together to hell. And so the people who were the followers, they, they're trying to revolt. And the same discussion is going to happen with the shaitan, with Satan. And they're going to, and, and Satan is right away going to say, I had nothing to do with you. Don't say that you were followers of me and my teachings. All I did was to whisper things in your hearts and you obeyed. I didn't call you to anything. Don't blame me. I'm not your leader and you're not my followers. We're not a group. Right? This same thing happens again and again in the Holy Quran. In another verse in Surah Ghafir, the same discussion, 
فيقول الضعفاء للذين استكبروا إنا كنا لكم تبعا فهل أنتم مغنون عنا نصيبا من النار In Surah Al-Ghafir it says Will you provide any avail or any protection against a portion of this hellfire that we're going to be exposed to Don't take the whole responsibility but come on we were your followers so you have to take a little bit more responsibility than us for being our leaders and we were simply your followers we have verses of the Quran that say this is not an argument the Quran recognizes though it says those were the du'afa the weak in what sense are they weak the weak because they're simply followers in some cases we can say they couldn't do anymore they had to be followers or they didn't want to be anything more than followers and that's the key if you can't, you can't. This is the main principle in our religion. If this is beyond your ability and beyond your control, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you're not responsible. But if you can do, if you can find an alternative, if you have another option, there's oppression, you have to follow a specific rule, the Holy Quran says it will be told to them. Was the earth of God not expansive enough for you to travel in it? Leave. If you can't worship God here, go worship God somewhere else. If it's impossible, this is not enough of an excuse that your rulers are. Which means that this, because some have tried to turn this into jabr, into predeterminism. That's it. People are forced. That's it. You're part of a culture. You're part of a society. This is how everyone thinks. It's impossible to go against this. It's too difficult to find the truth, to see the truth when the ocean is entirely going against you. When the currents are all going against you. The Quran rejects this. It says, so long as you are able to recognize, go and find a way to worship. Find the truth. Act based on the truth. To your ability. But just to say, I was a follower. They were the leader. And that's enough. The Quran says, yeah, but you all end up in hell. You accept that? No. Okay, then go after the truth. It's not enough to be a follower. And this is the whole discussion about what it means to be a follower. What is this weakness? قال الضعفاء A few lectures ago, there's another term that we saw in the hadith, very close to this one. Sometimes it's mentioned. المستضعف It's even mentioned in the Quran. Again here, it says الضعفاء Who is this مستضعف? Again, there is a weakness. Right? The root of it is they have some sort of weakness. It's like you're in a state of minority, but not minority as in you're small in number. You're a minor. What does it mean today when you say you're a minor? It means that you need a guardian. You need someone to act on your behalf. You still don't know the full picture. You don't have full autonomy. You can't think for yourself on everything. So this is where you see this ضعف. There are people who are in that state naturally. That's fine. We're all brought into this world as children. We need parents to raise us, to guide us, to teach us. You're in a state of minority. Until you get out of that state, you become a major, right? You have enough maturity. And there are things, there are groups of people, there are situations where people decide to stay in a state of minority. I will continue to follow blindly. 
I will stay in a state of minority. Others will think for me because I'm just a follower. I will follow the ruler. Wherever the ruler goes, whatever religion, meaning whatever worldview, whatever culture, whatever ideology they put forth, that's the one that we're going to follow because we're part of this group, this culture, this community. And today, I think it's very easy to see this fully in power. Anyone who spends a bit of time trying to study or understand society, you see this, and you see the shift. However you want to call it, look at any country, countries where there is often a change of government, for instance. If there are different political parties that come into power with very different, in a lot of cases, they're very close in their worldviews and their ideologies. It might be difficult to tell apart. But if they suddenly introduce very clear, very distinguishable cultural shifts, then you have to right away see this becomes a really good test to this principle. Are people on the religion of the rulers or not? Are people followers of the worldviews of the rulers or not? If the majority of people follow, this only establishes this principle, whether it's a hadith or not, as we said. The substance of it seems to be true. And it makes sense, because those in a position of power have the tools to make this happen. This doesn't happen automatically. There's no magic behind it. The person who is in a position of rule obviously has resources, obviously has the means to get to that power, to become the ruler. They also have the means to keep that power and maintain it. And the best way to do that is to ensure that the mentalities and the culture and the worldview of the people under them are aligned where they're trying to go. Right? There's a lot of notes here, but I think we covered the, the main highlights around all of this. The two points left. We talked about this, not specifically to talk about the place of the rulers. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about the scholars. But the hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ put these two together. He said there are two groups of people. If they are good, my nation will be good. Ummati. My ummah is going to be good. Al-fuqaha wal-umara. If they are bad, my nation will be bad. So we have to think, how come those two ended up in the same category? It means that someone who is a true carrier of knowledge has this type of influence. In the case of the ruler, it might be a lot more obvious. In the case of the scholar, it's a lot more indirect. It's nuanced. It's hidden. But they have that type of power. So there's definitely an overlap between how a ruler rules and how a scholar exercises their power. Okay, so this has to, on one side, be a warning, and one side be a lesson. We have to sit and study this and see what does it mean. That's one. Secondly, this also means that we can perhaps generalize, and this is not the time to do so, but we just leave it here to think about more. Perhaps it means that in Islam, those two groups definitely, the Holy Prophet just said, they carry a lot more responsibility. Because if those people are good, they're not just good for themselves. The entire nation becomes good. If they are bad, the entire nation becomes bad. 
So they have a lot more responsibility, a lot more burden. Which means that anyone who can have that type of influence beyond themselves, when I think, when I act, when I write, when I show up, when I do something, when I say something, it goes way beyond just me and what I represent. Anyone who's in that situation is now going to start falling in this category. That becomes a rule. That's the principle. It's not really specifically about just scholars and rulers. Yes, of course, scholars and rulers. They're the clearest examples of people who act or who speak or who don't act and don't speak. And it goes way beyond themselves as individuals. It's going to affect all of society. But we can come up with dozens of examples of others who are in this situation. The clearest one is when you live as a Muslim, as a minority in another society. Of course what you do is going to be recognized and interpreted and used as a symbol. You are now a symbol of your religion. If people know you're a Muslim, then you represent Islam. You don't represent just yourself. You represent your religion. This is what Islam says. This is what Islam does. This is how Islam acts. You can try to keep talking and being loud and saying, No, I only represent myself. I don't represent my religion. Is this how the majority of people interpret who you are and what you symbolize? No. And you can keep repeating that thousands of times. You can go on all the platforms and say that. I only represent myself. I'm only an individual. This is all personal. If people know that you're a Muslim, this is going to be interpreted as this is Islam. And this perhaps becomes even clearer in the case of sisters, for instance, or people who are recognized as a symbol of religion. A sister who's wearing a veil, whether she thinks about it or not, she's being a representative of religion. And so everything you do at school and everything you do at university and everything you do at work and everything you do while you're shopping or walking in the park is being interpreted as this is Muslims. And beyond Muslims, this is Islam. This is not just the person, this is the entire ideology. So it means that if it's true that you are more responsible, you carry an additional responsibility because you're a ruler or because you're a scholar, because of what people associate you with, then of course you're also going to carry more responsibility just being a Muslim in these cases. Perhaps if you went to another society where people are not looking at you as someone who stands out, you go to a predominantly Muslim country and you act, no one pays attention to you, you're just one more person. Yeah, that responsibility goes away. Now you only represent yourself. You're just one more person. So this is constantly changing. That's why we said we can come up with dozens of examples. But this is clearly a very flagrant one, very manifest one for us. Next hadith. From Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam. He says, إِذَا بَلَغَتِ النَّفْسُ هَاهُنَا And he pointed to his throat. وَأَشَارَ بِيَدِهِ إِلَىٰ حَلْقِهِ الحلق is the throat. لَمْ يَكُنْ لِلْعَالِمِ تَوْبَةِ ثُمَّ قَرَأَ إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السُّوءَ بِجَهَالَةِ So Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam says, When the soul reaches here, and he pointed to his throat, there will be no repentance for the scholar. 
So when does the throat reach here? It means at the time of death. We have a hadith that say that the soul is extracted from the throat or from the nose or somewhere around the head depending on whether someone is good or bad and it's done gently or harshly and so on and so forth. And this is referred to in the Holy Quran. Right? He refers to, the Holy Quran says, Taraqi. So the bones, the collarbone or the neck bones. So the soul is definitely coming to leave the body. So the Imam is saying, when the soul reaches here and he points to his throat or this general area, meaning when, it's, when someone is about to die, there will be no repentance for the scholar, the Imam says. So the Imam is singling out the person who carries knowledge. So by opposition, what about other people? Well, we have a lot of ruayat that say, yeah, you can still ask for repentance until the last moment. If you don't fall in the category of someone who knows, that's the difference, that's the distinction. The imam here, he's making it very clear. The case of the scholar, the person who knows, there is no repentance for them at this point. Then he recited, truly repentance from God is for those who commit wrong unknowingly. That's how it would be translated here. Those are the people for whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That's a whole discussion. The verse, these verses in, in Surah An-Nisa, there are verses 17 and 18. In Surah An-Nisa, that would be a whole discussion. The verse is, فَأُولَٰئِكَ يَتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this verse, the acceptance of your repentance, when you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you, the acceptance of repentance upon God. This is important. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Himself, upon God. إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ Okay, upon God is only for those who commit evil out of Ignorance. Then they repent promptly, quickly. It is those whose repentance God will accept. Ula'ike yatubullahu alayhim. Wakan Allahu, and Allah is all knowing, all wise. Wakan Allahu aliman hakima. Here there's like every word here we could stop. First, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Innama tawbatu, he's saying exclusively. Had that word inna or innama, truly, indeed, verily. One way to understand this is they say inna and then followed by al tawbatu, it means exclusively. A tawbah, repentance is granted by God, or is God considers it to be upon himself to repent. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it almost like a promise or a rule. You want my repentance? You want me to forgive? You have to fall in this category. You have to perform the sin unknowingly, bijahalatin, thumma yatubuna min qareeb. And you have to seek God's repentance quickly. And of course, if you go back to the tafasir here, there's a whole discussion. What does min qareebin mean? Quickly. What does it mean? And some of them have said, so long as the person is in this world and they have not left, they, they are still in this world, it's still considered an qareebin, min qareebin. They haven't left this world. Okay, and others. In any case, the language that is used in the verse seems to say that you perform the sin and then you 
ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right away as soon as you realize that you have performed the sin. You have to regret that you have performed the sin and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. And the, if you study a little bit more akhlaq and you study the effect of a sin, you'll understand that there's a reason for this. If you perform the sin and you kind of neglect it, and then you come back years later to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness, either you didn't know that this was a sin, okay, you didn't know. Now you know. Still, that sin lingered in you. That still, That sin still remained in you, in your heart, as part of you. You did not let go of that. The longer it stays there, the longer it is part of you. It doesn't mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't forgive. It means that there is a spiritual aspect to this. And then perhaps the other way to understand this is to say, if you let that sin linger and you no, never express your regret to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely that there was a sin and I truly regret it and I never want to go back to it. If you never do it this way and you let it linger for a long time and then years later, perhaps you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive those sins. Some say that this condition that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes it, makes it upon himself. Almost, you know, it's disrespectful to say it this way. But to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it compulsory, obligatory, necessary for him to provide, to grant the repentance, to forgive the sin for those people. You're no longer part of those people. You didn't seek the forgiveness right away. You didn't express your regret right away. You let it linger. So in other ways, or in other words, you didn't consider it something urgent enough, important enough, that you had to go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say, this was wrong. I ask your forgiveness. So if you didn't do that, then they say, your chances of repentance just diminished because you're no longer part of the category that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to those, I'll give them the repentance. It's upon me to give repentance to those who perform the sin. And that's why we've always said, our religion doesn't say be infallible and never perform sins. No, we will be weak and we will perform sins and we will ask repentance and forgiveness and we will re-perform re the sin again and we will ask forgiveness again. This is how the Qur'an is presented. But the condition is that you feel that you did something wrong. You didn't do it to fight Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You didn't do it out of stubbornness against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You did it out of weakness. And inshallah one day we'll go to through the dua Abu Hamza al-Thamali where Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam talks about this. He explains it in more detail. He says, when I performed the sin, O my God, O my Lord, when I performed the sin, I was not confronting your lordship. I was not going against your divinity. I was doing this because I got too weak in front of my desires. I'm very different. And this can be the other meaning. Because if we focus only on the knowledge, then what is against the knowledge? What is the other side of knowledge? Is the lack of knowledge. Is the jahl. Right? Ignorance. But we said the other translation, the other way to understand jahl is what? Foolishness. That you act against reason, against wisdom. That's jahl. We said the word doesn't translate directly. In Arabic, jahl means those two things. In English, you have to choose one or the other. You can't find a word in English that has both of these meanings. Lack of knowledge and lack of wisdom. 
So one way the verse is saying In one case the person doesn't know they're performing something wrong That's jahala, jahl The other meaning is you know it's wrong But you're acting foolishly In this case that's jahala too And that's why in one, in one way you say The person who performs the sin out of ignorance And the other is out of foolishness Then the verse makes sense So here the imam is saying at the end of all of this He's saying the person who is knowledgeable The person who is in full control of their faculties And who performs the sin And that's why the imam when he is asked Will they perform? Does the mu'min perform so and so sin, so and so sin? He says yes, not while they are a mu'min It's a moment of weakness But in that moment they are not a mu'min And he says iman is like a thawb يخلعه. He removes it he removes faith in that moment. He is not a believer. And that's the danger of dying in that state. That you're no longer dying a believer. And this is the other condition in the verse. The next verse, we didn't talk about the next verse. That would bring us in a completely different place. The next verse, so the first verse was saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives, grants the tawbah to those people. Then the next verse says, وَلَيْسَتِ التَّوْبَةُ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السَّيِّئَاتِ حَتَّى إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَهُمُ الْمَوْتِ قَالَ إِنِّي تُبْتُ الْآنِ The tawbah is not to those who keep performing the sins without any care. They just keep performing the sins until death arrives, if you want to translate it literally, until death appears, حَتَّى إِذَا حَضَرَ Death is now present. Now I repent. Now I seek God's forgiveness. Nor those who die in a state of disbelief. Unfaithful. That's why the Imam says, while he is performing the sin, no, he's not a believer. And then he repents. He goes back to a state of belief and he repents and he regrets. He goes back into a state of belief. This verse says, it's giving two conditions. So the previous verse said, those who perform the act foolishly, not out of stubbornness, you're not fighting God. You act foolishly. You act out of ignorance. And then you seek forgiveness, Allah will grant it. Not those who continuously perform the sin until they reach death, when they reach death, they want to seek forgiveness now. Nor those who die in a state of disbelief. And again, the commentators here have a lot to say. What does that mean? Some have said it's because people, the human being and their soul will continue. We live on. So as you're dying and after you die and in your grave and you continue to try to seek forgiveness, you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you, but it's too late. So that's why once death happens, it's not the end, you're still alive, it's just your body is dead. You continue to ask, or maybe other people ask for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also has the ability to grant you forgiveness. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will not grant it. They cannot ask it for themselves because death has arrived and others can't ask it for them either. If they were people who basically mocked God, mocked that this is a sin, Mocked God's punishment. Why is it that when, once death happens, 
What's the difference? This is where you have to go back in the ahadith, and we've talked about this in the past. The human being, once they are closer and closer to those pangs of death, they start seeing things for what they tr truly are. Once death happens, you see reality. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted you to be a believer in this world, not seeing reality. You don't know. This is ghayb. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ghayb. Jannah and nar is ghayb. You have to believe in something that is not there in front of you. You have to believe in it because it's convincing. You use your reason and you understand what you're being presented and say, this is truth and I believe in it. This is what God wants from us in this world. Once you're at death and everything starts to become clear and you understand what this world is really worth and what's waiting for you after death, it's too late. This is exactly what Fir'aun did. Once he reached death, Right? When, once he started to drown, then he realized that he's about to die. That's it. He should have been saved. If, if he's truly seeking God's repentance, why was he not saved? Why was his faith not accepted when he's saying, I have believed in the one in whom Bani Israel have believed? Even in that moment, he could not say, I believe in God. Whatever Bani Israel have now believed in, I believe in him. Just get me out of the water. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not accept it then because now it's too late. You're supposed to believe when you're free, when it means something. Not under duress, not when it's only about life, of death, life or death, not when you understand now what's waiting for you after death. That you're supposed to believe in it. You have to have faith. يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ Right? Surah Al-Baqarah, as soon as it starts. From the beginning, the first condition. The believer is the one who believes in ghayb. Something hidden, unseen. Once you're at death, this is no longer unseen. So there's a lot of lessons we can take from these two verses and we went into them just because the imam referred to a part of the verses the idea is the scholar the imam says the scholar is not granted the repentance that is offered once you start becoming the person who carries the knowledge and worse the person who starts to teach the knowledge and to spread the knowledge and to write the knowledge this knowledge is supposed to be clear and present to you other people might forget. It's easier for them to fall into weakness. What's your excuse? You're living this. You're telling people. So in the case of the scholar, the chances of repentance, the closer they get to death, become smaller and smaller. That's one. Secondly here, clearly there's a difference between when you act and you don't know and when you act and you know. So it becomes dangerous. The more knowledge you have, the more dangerous it becomes to perform a sin. That's one. Two, clearly there is a danger. None of us know when we die. When am I going to die? When the Holy Quran says one of your conditions for the repentance is that you leave this world in a state of faith. You have to leave this world. You can ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness, but you have to leave this world in a state of belief. You don't lose that belief until you leave this world. So again, there's a danger here. 
And inshallah, this is another topic for another day. But park it for now. Next hadith from one of the companions of Imam al Imam Sadiq salam. His name is Hafs ibn Ghiyath. So Hafs ibn Ghiyath, it's not 100% clear whether he was one of the close companions of Imam Sadiq salam or not. Clearly he would come to the Imam and he reported a number of ahadith from the imma. If you go back to his life, he also was or became a judge under Harun at the time of Imam al-Kadhim, Imam al-Sadiq, Imam al-Kadhim. So in this case, I feel like, without going into too much details, it's as though the Imam is reacting to something, but we don't know what it is. There's a larger context here. So I'll just say that for now, and then we focus on what the Imam said to this man. Okay, so this is a longer hadith. One area in this hadith clearly has to do with the relationship with this world. And of course, in this case, we can assume that the Imam is talking to scholars, to this person who is supposed to be a scholar or who will become a scholar. So the burden and the responsibility is heightened. It's still valid. What the Imam says, it's still valid for anyone. But there's clearly an emphasis here for the person who carries knowledge. That's the first point. The second point is that you will see one of these equations that we've talked about. Someone who performs an injustice or a wrong in this world, or you can harm someone else. That is the result of what? Why would anyone be able to do that? And the Imam is going to kind of give us a, an equation. This is a lack of fear of God. And why do you not fear God? Because you lack knowledge. Lack of knowledge means you don't fear God. And that's the equation we've been talking about. Knowledge means fear of God. If you can harm someone else, it means you do not fear God. That's how you can harm someone else. The Imam is not even going to talk about people, as you will see. So he says, this man says, عن حفظ بن غياث قال قال أبو عبد الله عليه السلام So this is Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam. يا حفظ ما منزلة الدنيا من نفسي إلا بمنزلة الميتة إذا اضطررت إليها أكلت منها This is how the Imam begins. He tells him, O Hafs, the world holds the same place for me or in my eyes as a carcass, the carcass of a, the body of a dead animal. If I am compelled to do so, I eat from it. How many of us want to jump on the carcass of a dead animal and start eating from it? It's disgusting. But if you're in a state where you're about to die, and this is the only thing there that is preventing you from dying, then suddenly it might be something bearable. But how much would you eat? Would you make of that a feast? Would you just sit and eat for hours and say, this is the meal that I've been waiting for? No. You'll eat just enough so that you can move on to survive. Imam Sadiq salam says, this world to me represents the dead carcass from which I have to eat if I really have to. If I am forced to do so, if I'm compelled to do so, I eat from it. Okay, that's one. The Imam continues. Ya Hafs, Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala alima mal ibadu amilun wa ila ma hum sa'irun 
فحلم عنهم عند أعمالهم السيئة لعلمه السابق فيهم So he starts by saying God Almighty already knew Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already knew how his servants will be acting and what will be their ends. But he showed them compassion and patience when they did wrong because of his eternal knowledge. Then he says, فَلَا يَغُرَّنَّكَ حُسْنُ مِمَّنْ لَا يَخَافُ الْفَوْتِ So don't be seduced, don't be tricked by or deceived. And here حُسْنُ الطَّلَبِ can mean two things. The constant requests or the good requests, the beauty, the beautiful requests from those who do not fear the passing of the opportunity. So here this requires a little bit of an explanation. Okay, the Imam is saying, don't be tricked by one of two things. This can mean two things. The fact that you constantly are able to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for things or that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers your prayers, that in itself is not an indication that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven you or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is satisfied with you. Okay? Either the imam is telling him about you, he's telling him you. If you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he seems to be answering your prayers, or if you see others asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they seem to be, have prayers that are constantly answered. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation, if you see other people who are really good at praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have beautiful prayers, beautiful requests from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That in itself is not a criteria. Okay, so he says, If it's from someone who does not fear that the opportunity passes, the passing of the opportunity. What's the opportunity? of being in this world, being alive. Don't let that trick you. And this is something that requires a heightened or an elevated wisdom and judgment on a believer. When we don't have the maturity in life, we think that simply because I become a believer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to answer all of my prayers. So if He answers my prayers, it means I'm good. And I'm a good believer and my life has to become easy and everything is going to fall in place. No. In fact, it could be the opposite. A lot of hadith and some, uh, and some verses of the Quran seem to indicate the opposite. The more of a believer you are, the more you're going to be tested. You're a really believer? You want to stand behind that faith? You have to go through this test. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, talk is cheap. Did people think that simply by saying that we have believed, that they have truly believed? Just because you said I believed, it means you are really a believer? The Quran begins the verse this way. Is enough for you just to say the words? I have believed and this is considered faith and belief? No. Yuftanun means you're going to be put through tests. So this has to be something we rectify for ourselves too. And the imam here is indicating that. And in fact, we even have a hadith. It's not time to expand too much. Imam Ali salam says, this is the time when you should fear God the most. If you continuously pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps answering your prayers, and you know that you're sinning. This is when you should fear God the most. 
it means that you are now in a different category where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is testing you by giving you more favors to see how far will you continue to go. It means your punishment is going to be greater. You're in a very dangerous place now. So in this case, this is what the Imam is saying. Don't get tricked by yourself or if you see others and they constantly ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for things and they get those things. Okay? And then the Imam continues. ثُمَّ تَلَى قَوْلَهُ تَعَالَى So then the Imam, the, the reporter says, then the Imam recited this verse, تِلْكَ الدَّارُ الْآخِرَةُ الْآيَةِ So this is in Surah Al-Qasas, تِلْكَ الدَّارُ الْآخِرَةُ نَجْعَلُهَا لِلَّذِينَ لَا يُرِيدُونَ عُلُوًّا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا فَسَادًا وَالْعَاقِبَةُ لِلْمُتَّقِينَ وَجَعَلَ يَبْكِي وَيَقُولْ ذَهَبَتْ he said he recited this verse. So this verse would be, that is the abode of the afterlife. That's the outcome, the final outcome, the afterlife, which we grant for those who desire neither dominance upon this earth nor corruption. So who is going to own the afterlife? The afterlife is like a home, right? It's an abode, a dar. Tilka darul akhirah. This home or this abode of the afterlife. Who do we grant it to? Who do we give it to, to own in the afterlife? To those who did not seek dominance in this world. They did not seek dominance or corruption. So it means that you have an ability to seek dominance and to seek corruption in this world, but you decide not to. You hold back. You don't act with corruption and dominance in this world. We give you the afterlife as an abode. You own the afterlife. But look at how the Imam understands this. He doesn't tell us what he understands. But how he reacts when he reads this verse. He says, we give it to those who do not seek dominance or corruption in this world. And the ultimate outcome belongs to the God-fearing. وَالْعَاقِبَةُ The ultimate outcome. لِلْمُتَّقِينَ Those who fear God. The outcome belongs to them. And then the Imam started weeping, saying, by God, all hopes have vanished at this verse. It's like Imam al-Sadiq says, imagine the Imam saying, I have hopes, I have dreams, I have aspirations. But when I read this verse, I see that I fall short. So my dreams and my hopes fall short. So he cries for that. And this is, by the way, an answer. There are a lot who think, and they emphasize on this point, unfortunately. They emphasize that how our Imams, everything they say and everything they do is constantly to teach others. This reaction from the Imam is not teaching others. This is not an act. The Imam is not putting up a, you know, a, an act for people to watch him and then learn from. This is how the Imam really reacts to this verse. The Imams become Imams because of this, because they understand what these verses mean. So you have to sit and think, why would this verse, this verse from Surah Al-Qasas, verse 83, why does this verse make the Imam react this way? I can't answer this. The Imam didn't explain it. This is for us. Now you have to sit, take time, think about this, meditate. Why would this verse make the Imam act this way? What are these aspirations and hopes and dreams of the Imam that he says all dreams fall short? All aspirations now have fallen because of this verse. This is how the Imam reacts. Then we continue. The Imam then, and this is the point, the first part of the, the ruwaya is not 
directly relevant to what we've been talking about, but I thought it's still worth mentioning. Then the Imam says, Then he said, by God, the righteous ones are victorious. They are the ones who won. He tells his companion, Hafs, he tells Hafs, do you know who they are? The virtuous, do you know who they are? They are the ones who do not harm الذر. What's الذر? الذر is tiny, tiny ants or tiny, tiny insects that are almost not perceptible by the eye. This is the in origin. If you go back to the root of this word, الذر, or today, الذرة, that's what it means. It was tiny insects that are almost not perceptible by the eye. And the Arabs also used to use the same term for things, the little specks of dirt or other things that fly in the rays of the sun. If you look at a ray of the sun and you see things flying, they also refer to that as dar. Okay? فَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ The weight of one of these things. خَيْرًا يَرَهُ وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَةٍ If you do the weight of one of these things flying. Today, some people say that it's a reference to the theory of the atom, the atomic theory, where you have atoms that are referred to in Arabic as dharra. In any case, that's the origin of the word. So the Imam says, do you know by God, the righteous ones are the ones who are victorious. Do you know who they are? They are the ones who do not harm the smallest ant or the smallest insect. So this is the theory. And I said before, the Imam is now explaining a whole theory. Today we would perhaps spend a couple of years in psychotherapy studying this. Why would anyone harm anyone else? Harm another human being? Harm another creature? Where does this come from? So here the Imam is giving one explanation. This is a spiritual dimension of it. He says you harm others because you have no fear of God. He's going to say, do you know who are the abrar? They are the ones who will not even harm an insect. Who will not even harm an imperceptible insect. He just gave the answer. Fear of God is sufficient knowledge. That's the answer. And what else? And Arrogance is sufficient ignorance. You don't need any more ignorance. If you have arrogance, that's all the ignorance you need. All the foolishness you need is to be arrogant. Ignorant, arrogant enough to harm an imperceptible insect. You fear God enough that you will avoid harming the imperceptible insect. Imam Ali talks about this, by the way. If I were to give, be given the seven heavens, right? If I were to be given the seven heavens with everything that is under them so that I would harm a grasshopper by removing a piece of wheat from its mouth, I swear I would not do. He says that in Nahj al-Balagha. Okay? We have a lot of examples of this. So here the Imam is saying, they are the ones who are abrar. They are ones who are virtuous. Why? How do you know they can't harm anyone else? He's not even talking about human beings. He's not even talking about a believer or a Shi'i or a follower of Ahlul Bayt or these are additional layers. 
He's saying they will not even harm another creature as imperceptible as it is, that creature, out of fear of God. It's not that that creature itself. And this is the key. Today they try to make you focus on the sacredness of nature, to respect nature, to respect the beings in nature. Does it work? For the majority of people, will this work? It can't work. We're not wired this way as human beings. Why would I respect the ant? Why would I suddenly consider the ant sacred? Or the tree? Or the planet? Or the ocean? Why would I avoid harming? Ah, but if I fear God? No, that's completely different. You can make me do anything if I fear God. You can make me stop doing anything if I fear God. Now it's no longer my existence and your existence. I fear God. That's it. My existence becomes null. It stops. It's not I go as far as I need to, and then we'll see. What if there's nothing that prevents me? It's survival of the fittest. That's how we're wired. According to all biology, according to all science, that's how we're wired. Now you want to add an ethical dimension to it. Where does it come from? People are just supposed to believe. I don't need to. What's going to compel me? What compels you is something internal. That you fear God. You will not be able to harm an insignificant ant. Then the imam continues. And so this is, that was the arrogance part. And we already, to me, I'm just basically highlighting things we've said before. That you remember when we were talking about the characteristics of the teacher, for instance. We saw the hadith that say the teacher has to be someone who increases your humility and decreases your arrogance. Right? Here, responsibility. Then the imam says, Ya Hafs, إِنَّهُ يُغْفَرُ لِلْجَاهِلِ سَبْعُونَ ذَنْبًا قَبْلَ أَنْ يُغْفَرُ لِلْعَالِمِ ذَنْبٌ وَاحِدٌ Oh Hafs, know that 70 sins are forgiven to the ignorant person before a single sin is forgiven to the scholar. Okay, so this is going to be important when we balance things out. Later, when we're going to talk about the rewards and the merits and the ranks of the scholar, they will not make sense unless you keep this in mind to balance things out. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive 70 sins to the person who doesn't know first before maybe Maybe the scholar will get one sin forgiven. Because the scholar knows. And this person doesn't. So Allah will give them chances. Does the scholar deserve that chance when they know? And inshallah the next ahadith we're going to stop today. Worse than just knowing. When they preach to others. They deserve that forgiveness and those chances? What, what does this look like? What's the difference then? So this is the responsibility. So he says, "Ya Hafs, إنه يغفر للجاهل سبعون ذنبا قبل أن يغفر للعالم ذنب واحد." And then he repeats a part of a hadith that we have said multiple times before. Here, the Imam is not saying it as part of the rest. Usually, it's Allah Subhanahu wa Taala أوحى إلى دانيال. You will remember that hadith. Here, the Imam simply says, "من تعلم وعلم وعمل بما علم." So the one who learns and then who teaches, 
and then who acts based on what they know, the key, the most difficult one, du'iya, this person is going to be called in the kingdom of the heavens, great. Greatness in the eyes of God is this. You learn, you teach, and you act based on what you know. Here, to me, he changed topics. He went in another direction. He focused on the part that the imam spoke about initially in the hadith. So we're focused here on the scholar and on knowledge. He's going to focus on zuhd. He's going to focus on being detached from this world. He tells the imam, ما حد الزهد في الدنيا What is the limit or what is the definition? Which is, by the way, it, definition means limit. What is the limit of or what is the definition of zuhd in this world, detachment in this world? What does it look like? The imam already answered to me. I would, that's what I would have said. The imam already gave you an excellent example. He told you it's like a carcass. Would you eat from it? That's the limit. Yes, you would enough to survive. That's your limit. But the imam answered him in a different way. So he says, I asked the imam, what is the limit or the definition of detachment in this world? He said, قَالْ قَدْ حَدَّ اللَّهُ فِي كِتَابِهِ قَدْ حَدَّهُ اللَّهُ فِي كِتَابِهِ فَقَالَ عَزَّ وَجَلُ لِكَيْ لَا تَأْسَوْ عَلَى مَا فَاتَكُمْ وَلَا تَفْرَحُوا بِمَا آتَاكُمْ So the imam told him, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the limit of detachment or zuhd. He has given this limit in his book in the Quran. So he said, Almighty is he, so that you do not despair over that which he has passed or he has given you. And that you do not rejoice or you do not boast over that which he has given you. So you do not despair over that which he has taken from you. And that you do not rejoice over that which he has given you. And of course this is this would be the, the perfect state of the human being. You're in full submission to what God would, wills. You're in full acceptance of whatever comes your way. Right? So you, you live a life of satisfaction. This is, this is a huge point. Oftentimes, in the, the most difficult thing we could describe is usually in Karbala. And this is what you see. Imam Hussein alayhi salam, Sayyidah Zainab alayhi salam. This is the point they emphasize. Whatever comes our way, if this is what God wants, this is what pleases God, this is what is sent our way, this is my fate, this is my sword, full acceptance, full submission. Right? This is, this is what the verse is saying. So that you do not despair over that which has passed and, the, and that you do not rejoice by that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you. Why? Because you know all of this is temporary. You're put in this world as a test. If you understand this, then the rest is easy. You don't get attached to the thing in itself. You don't lose track of the bigger picture. Why are you here? We've given multiple examples of this in the past. You get tricked by the station in the middle of the way where you do your pit stop and you think this is a destination or do you keep in mind that I have another destination. I'm only stopping here for 10 minutes. My destination is, you know, I'm moving to another country. I'm going to live there for 20 years. Do you let go of all of that for the 15-minute pit stop? And you start getting distracted by whatever you're seeing in this gas station or restaurant. This is what we do in this world. We get distracted by what we find here. We forget this is supposed to be 
only a pit stop. This is temporary. Important? Yes. You have to take whatever you need here because you're going to need it there. Everything you have there comes from here. You have to do your work here. Not a second to waste. It's very important. It's not that you completely forget about it. No, you use it. It's necessary. It's a necessary pit stop, the Imam says. It's a necessary carcass to eat from. But don't get distracted by it in itself. Use it as an instrument for what's after. And then the Imam continues. And so this is the equation. Knowledge, piety, action. Ilm, taqwa, the Imam talks about it. Remember the equation. We cite in multiple verses and multiple reports. Here the Imam says it. Who is most knowledgeable about God? Is it the person who can spend 30 years explaining al-asfar? <laughs> the highest level of, you know, irfan and philosophy. And of course that can be. But that's not the indication. Ahl-Bayt give you a very clear criteria. If all of that, the theoretical knowledge, and you're able to, as the Imam said in another report, you are able to split the hairs in the most difficult of the problems of philosophy or of ilm, that's not enough if there is no khashya. If you don't fear God, completely useless. Here the Imam says, The most knowledgeable people about God, the one who fears God the most. And then the Imam flips it. And that's why I say, you read the words of Ahlul Bayt properly, you see it's a mathematical equation. So he said, A leads to B, right? You have knowledge, it has to lead to fear of God. Now he's going to say, وَأَخْوَفَهُمْ لَهُ أَعْلَمُهُمْ بِهِ Now he gave you the opposite. The one who fears God the most is the one who knows God the most. So at first he said, the one who knows God the most fears God the most. And the one who fears God the most is the one who knows God the most. And then he's going to add the third ingredient. So that part of the equation is clear. That's two variables. Now the third variable. He says, And the one who is most knowledgeable about God will be the most detached in this world. The one who will give least value to this world. That's it. That's the equation. Everything else you can say about this world and the relationship to this world and the relationship to God, the Imam just concentrated it all, focused it all, summarized it all in these three statements. You have to acquire knowledge. The Imam just told you before what you have to do. So what's my duty in life? He already told you. To be great in the afterlife. To be great in the kingdom of heaven. Which is what the Imam said. You learn, you teach what you learned, and you act based on what you learned. So what happens if you learn if you know, now you have the knowledge, what happens? You must fear God. And the more you fear God, the more you know God. That's the equation. Knowledge equals piety, taqwa, khashya. And the opposite. Khashya equals ilm. What does it mean practically in this world? It means you're detached. It means you have وَأَعْلَمُهُمْ بِهِ أَزْهَدُهُمْ فِيهَا the one who knows God the most is going to be the one who is the most detached from this world. Again, does zuhd mean that you live a miserable life 
of poverty and you don't care about anything? No. And we said again and again, our religion has so many teachings about every aspect of our lives. Be clean, be proper, be organized, live a wealthy life, live a luxurious life. But don't get attached to those things. The true meaning doesn't come from the things in themselves. If those things pass, you can't despair. If those things come, you can't rejoice too much. Rejoice about things that matter and despair about things that matter. فَقَالَ لَهُ رَجُلٌ يَبْنَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ Yet another person changed the topic completely. فَقَالَ لَهُ رَجُلٌ يَبْنَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ And sometimes I get very frustrated when I read these ahadith. The imam is talking. Let him talk. Why do you stop him? What else would the imam have said? I don't know. Now this man came out of the blue and he said, Ausani, it's perhaps, and that's why I say sometimes when you read it, clearly there's perhaps a context. Maybe it becomes unbearable. Maybe the Imam is talking to people who are not really followers of Ahlul Bayt. And he's giving them advice that is going too deep to the heart. It's too much to bear. We need to lighten the mood a little bit. Let's, let's change the topic a little. Give me advice. Well, what, what was the Imam doing? <laughs> what do you call all of that? Anyways, so he said, فَقَالَ لَهُ رَجُلٌ يَبْنَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أَوْصِنِي Oh, you know, son of the messenger of God, give me advice. فَقَالَ إِتَّقِ اللَّهِ حَيْثُ كُنْتْ فَإِنَّكَ لَا تَسْتَوْحِشْ Fear God, whatever state or wherever you may be, you will never feel lonely or feel unfamiliar or feel uneasy. Depends how istihash is understood. You will never, never feel uneasy. So long as you are always in the presence of God. If you fear God, it's because you remember Him. So you're in His presence. You never feel uneasy. You're always good. You're always satisfied. You're always happy. You're always comfortable. God is with you. Okay, so let's stop here. We went a little bit over the time. I apologize. So let's stop here. If there are questions, concerns, comments. And inshallah, there's a few more hadith to wrap all of this uh, up and, and move to the next heading. وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Questions, concerns, comments تفضل So the question, now I'm going to repeat the questions because we uh, we got some feedback online that people don't hear the questions So is it true that the more or the less you know God, the less you fear Him. Yes, 100%. Is there a follow-up to that question? I feel that's the first question to a second one. No? Another one? Okay, let's see if other ones, other people have a question. I'll come back to you. And the person who worships, but they don't know what they're doing. So two people break my back. The Holy Prophet says, two people break my back. 
The first one is the scholar who openly performs sins. The second one is a zahid who performs their acts of worship. This is like someone like a monk or someone who is always worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they don't know what they're doing. Okay, so they do everything they do out of jahl, out of ignorance or foolishness. They can't really, they don't know what they're doing. Okay, I'll come back to you. Okay, if there's a question, ask. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Tawadhalu. Or fuqaha or umara, yeah. Yeah. So, are, uh, in the absolute sense of the word, fuqaha aren't they the imams themselves? And um, if that's true, depending on, on, I guess, maybe there's different opinions, but shouldn't these two roles kind of be held by the same person? That, that's what I was thinking. Um, obviously, during, during a time when there's an imam present, then a, a, any ruler who claims that he himself is the, the ruler of the Muslims, yeah, so excellent question. Goes to the heart of political theory in Islam. So the question is the Imam was referring to Fuqaha and Umara as two groups. Uh, should they not be uh, both titles should not both titles be held by the same person? Especially if the imam is the one talking. So in short, no, definitely the imam is talking about people in general. So anyone who learns fiqh is a fiqh. And fiqh simply meant at that time to go deep in the religious sciences. Okay, so anyone who goes deep or to the end of knowledge in any field of knowledge was referred to as fiqh, whether they learned uh, tafsir or they learned what we call fiqh today, all of that was called fiqh. Aqa'id, for instance. So anyone who learned religion was considered a faqih. And the scholars were filled <laughs> filled the, the Islamic world uh, from the time of the Holy Prophet and Imam Ali alayhi salam. So the, no matter how you spin it, there will always be more fuqaha than the Imam himself. That's one. Um, secondly, whether the Imam will always be the one who is Amir, even if in an ideal world, Let's say Imam Ali alayhi salam became the Khalifa. He is only one among many. Even at the time of the Imam, he wrote letters and, and he excluded. He had a lot of Umara. He had a lot of governors under him. And for some of them, he basically fired them from their position because of how they acted. Some of them were really good. And he wrote them a, a warning letter. I heard that you went to a party. You were invited by some wealthy people to a party. How dare you? That you go to such places and you forget those who are poor and you go to the places of those who are rich. He didn't really do anything wrong. In fact, today we would say that's the ABC of politics, right? That you have to go there, you, you, you create that network of... So the Imam is definitely talking in general and that's why we said while the Hadith is referencing or talking specifically about two groups of people, the Hadith is not about just the scholar or the ruler. 
It's anyone who has a position of influence that goes beyond themselves. So it could be you in your family. It could be I in this society. It could be anyone, right? So of course this is going to go beyond, you know, whether the imam is holding the also the position of the ruler or not in society. Now whether, now going to political theory, whether the same person has to hold both or not, that's a completely different discussion. So first and foremost, your your question is about this specific line, al-fuqaha'u wal-umara'u. The imam is uh, what you understood from it. That's not what's implied here for sure because there are way too many, you know, hundreds or thousands of them that uh, upon whom this title would work to say that they are a faqih or they are an emir, that they hold some sort of political rule, for instance, or authority in society. Does in every society the person who has the most knowledge has to be the person who also becomes the ruler? Even that is not a necessity. So even Islamically and even in that, there are a lot of ifs and there are a lot of conditions that have to be met. And perhaps there are verses in the Quran that seem to refer to that, right? At the time, for instance, of Talut and Jalut and why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says follow so and so, there are definitely other factors. I may be the person who has the most knowledge, but maybe knowledge is not absolute and maybe you need specific types of knowledge in specific types of situations to apply in that context. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them this is going to be your king and the person you follow, maybe he was not the most knowledgeable. He had knowledge, but maybe he was not the most knowledgeable. But he had another criteria. In this case, they had to be, Bani Israel had to be led into war. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them a warrior. He, he told them, he didn't only give him bastatan fil ilm, he said bastatan fil ilmi wal jism. He made him a warrior. This is a warrior. You need a warrior at this point. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent you a prophet or a man who is going to perform this rule for you. So it's not only a matter of, you know, you become the ruler just because, you know, check mark, you, you know, by pure data, you have more megs in your brain than someone else. Maybe that is a criteria in some cases, but that's not, definitely not the sole criteria for rule, you know, if we were to go back to Islamic political theory. Okay. Fadl. I thought I'll, I'll, I'll ask him any question, but uh, I can't retain myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, it will be quick. something that I believe is literally uh, it was uncovered in the lectures uh, uh, which is something both scholar and teacher, teacher may be exposed to and uh, by uh, the means related to the Quran and uh, if I try to link it to a well, there's two layers of you know, questions. First is, uh, you know, not that yet, but you know, it is a big topic that probably, you know, uh, we can it, or probably can discuss it uh, private, like, privately. Maybe. So if, if it could be applied, according to, I don't know, so it's only applied for. Uh, religious uh, uh, religious for laws. 
possibility that it, this applies for beliefs in, 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 in general. How could we like, find the semantic linkage between this modality of this tool and, um, and, and the, the role of the scholar? Would he be smart back to the agenda? And then all the how to do this hadith and the Arab. It's not for today. <laughs> but it's just something to be many lectures that we Well, definitely, I have to think about it uh, and to see whether we talk about it or not. But uh, just so that يعني, everybody understands the question, um, so you're you're uh, you're applying the the theory of muadhariya and munajziya to the scholar. So we have to under so muadhariya and munajziya is a very big theme in uh, a field, a very technical field uh, in Islamic studies called usul al-fiqh. So the principles of jurisprudence. And this uh, is basically the idea that um, your job as a human being before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to understand what is it, which context or which situations uh, make things incumbent upon you or binding upon you. So they're munajjas or which conditions relieve you from what is binding legally upon you, which is muadhar. For instance, when you have to pray, you are in a state of being bound by performing your prayer. So long as you haven't performed your prayer, you are bound. Once you have performed the prayer and performed the prayer based on your the conditions of the prayer, then you are now applied, you know, all the conditions so that you are muadhar. Okay? So that you have an excuse that you have been relieved before God of your legal duties. So now you want to use all of that, okay, to apply it to the scholar. In which conditions or in which situation is the scholar going to be bound fiqhi, legally, you know, by Islamic law, legally to act in a certain way or not, right? Uh, what makes the scholar feel like they have relieved their duty uh, before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from their legal binding of acting in a certain way or not? So very big, very big question. And I don't think there is a one answer simply because... This is where the fuqaha are going to disagree on what's the role of the faqih or what's the role of the scholar and, and what's, uh, you know, what's the minimum, right? I think all of them will agree on the upper limit being the nice to have. But I'm not sure that they will all agree on the minimum that this is, you know, this is the prescribed part. And this is all going to derive from walayat al-faqih and everything that falls from there, right? On what is the role of the faqih and what is the extent of their authority in society and in a community? Is it limited to you know understanding and then explaining the religion, or to be active in every aspect of human life that uh, can be provided with guidance from religion, and this therefore becomes the role of the faqih to you know show their religious understanding of those issues, right? So, very big question. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to touch on that or not. We may allude, we're going to see, I think, some hadith that refer to some things related to, uh, for instance, social justice and, and so on and so forth, for sure. But no details. And this is this is the reason why this is open to theories, right? It's because the, the details have not been given. It becomes a matter of of disagreement. 
right? That your interpretation and mine, you are faqih and I am, and you understand the duty as being this, and I understand it as being that. And so, you know, if I if I explained the issue and people understood, do I need to do more? Here, here's where the fuqaha will will disagree, right? So, big big topic. Ahsantum. Good, good technical question, but good question. <laughs> There's something that I didn't understand about the last hadith. Um, so the formula at the end, it was um, to learn or to gain knowledge and then to have fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then that leads to knowledge and that leads to detachment. So I don't understand what's the difference between the first knowledge and the second knowledge. No, it's the same knowledge. That's why I said it. Imagine it's a theory. So the Imam first said, um, first, in أَعْلَمَ nas billah, أَخْوَفَهُمْ billah. So the more knowledge means the more fear of God. What about the opposite? So in, in math, for instance, you, could, you might find a ratio of something to something. Well, can you say the opposite to? Necessarily, can you? I know, not necessarily. Sometimes the, the other way doesn't work. A leads to B, but you can't necessarily bring it back and say there's a perfect causality here, for instance, or perfect ratio, that B is also going to bring you back to A. Here the Imam confirmed that no, it does. So he said, the one who has most knowledge about God is the one who has the most fear of God. That's that's one. That's statement one in your in your equation. Statement two, And the one who fears God the most is the one who knows God the most. Now the Imam sealed it basically on both sides. Right? So there is no there there are no other factors here. Now he's gonna go back to Al-Ilm. And then he's going to derive something else out of it. He explained the relationship between knowledge, which is everything we've been talking about. Knowledge must lead to fear of God. Knowledge must lead to taqwa. So what does it mean for living in this world? Practically. So the imam derived it out of it. Because he's been talking about zuhd from the beginning. And as I said, perhaps he's reacting to something. He's reacting to these scholars who will become the fuqaha and the judges of Bani Abbas. Okay? And how they will use them. Okay, so and then he says, The one who has the most knowledge of God is also going to be the one who gives the least value to this world, who will be the most detached from this world. So this is kind of a derivative. But the equation itself is knowledge of God. If you really understand God, then you fear Him. And if you really fear God, it can only mean that you have knowledge of God. That's it. That's the equation. And so each one of them means things. We don't have time to talk, to talk about it. But if, if you say knowledge of God means fear of God, there are derivatives out of that. And if you say fear of God, which is less obvious, you say fear of God necessarily means knowledge of God. Now that alone is, is a law. That alone is a principle. And it has derivatives. The Imam said, this one is equal to this one. Now I have something to work with. That's what I meant, right? So this is where you have to go back and see, okay, what, what is the Imam talking about? What else can I take extract out of this? What does it mean? 
is our current way of understanding knowledge of God and fear of God appropriate? Does it work? Does it lead to this? Does it make me really understand that I know God more the more I fear Him? Does how I'm taught knowledge of God today, is it actually leading to fear of God? Or am I just accumulating terms and philosophical theories and history of you know thought and so on and so forth? But it doesn't lead to fear of God. It doesn't make me spiritually connected to God. Okay, so that, that means there's a whole dimension missing here. We're not saying that those things are bad in themselves. It's just, this is not the purpose. Something else is the purpose, and if it's entirely missed, then there's something really wrong with the methodology, with the curriculum, that it doesn't lead to fear of God. So, anyways, inshallah, it's clear. Yeah. Okay, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin.